passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. About five years ago, I had the chance, uh, Crystal and I had the chance to go to Uganda where we uh, did some mission work for a few weeks. Uh, I was working with a, a group of pastors, probably 10 to 15 pastors, and uh, I had been tasked with teaching them uh, about the life of Christ and the theology of the cross. And so uh, we, we spent some time together, a couple hours every single uh, day in the morning, and we just went through the book of Mark. We started with Jesus' birth, and then we, we kept going, and, and occasionally we would jump to another book uh, to look at specific passages that weren't found in the book of Mark. One of these times, uh, we, we spent a little bit of time in the Sermon on the Mount. A Sermon on the Mount, if you're not familiar with it, is found in the Gospel of Matthew. It is a couple chapters long. It's, it's considered to be Jesus' longest recorded sermon. And uh, in this sermon, Jesus is talking all about the ethics of the kingdom of God. He's talking all about uh, what it means to live as a, a member of God's kingdom rather than the kingdom of this world. And at one point in this uh, this book, or excuse me, in these chapters, Jesus says something that's pretty controversial. He says this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God, and all these will be given to you as well. What does he mean by these? Well, if you look at the context of the passage, uh, Jesus is essentially referring to uh, the things that we, t- that we tend to worry about, our possessions, our finances, and the on and on and on. Now, one of the reasons why pastoral training is so important in the developing world is because the uh, prosperity gospel is extremely common. Last August, we spent some time looking at the prosperity gospel and saw why it was such a problem uh, for us to believe that God wants to make us rich financially today. What we see in the gospel of Matthew is is a verse that is often taken it's twisted by these prosperity gospel teachers to use, and they use it to say, you know what, right here, if you seek God's kingdom, he's going to give you all that you could ever want, all that you could ever desire. He's going to make you rich. Now, why, why, am, I, why am I addressing this this morning? When we look at this passage uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, I'll be honest, I, I was a little nervous about five years ago. In fact, I didn't want to address the issue of prosperity teaching to these people who heard it all the time. I didn't want to offend anyone. I didn't want to uh, really step on any toes. And so I just skipped that verse. Skipped right over Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and continued in Matthew 6, verse 34. And almost immediately, every single pastor in that room looked at me with this look of concern on their face. They instantly knew that I had skipped a passage, a verse that was extremely important for them. And they told me afterward, they said, why didn't you look at that passage? So, you know, everything else you talked about, it was fine. But that's the reason why I came here. I wanted to look at what the life of Christ actually says in response to these people that teach the prosperity gospel. Now, again, why, why do I share that this morning? Five years ago... I skipped over a passage that was a little uncomfortable, and it didn't go well. This morning, I have the same inclination. I'd much rather just skip over our passage today. If you've already looked at your sermon notes, or if you've been following along in uh, 1 Timothy, you may have had this Sunday marked uh, as a Sunday that uh, you were going to be upset with or going to really want to know what is going on here 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, some of the most difficult verses to talk about in a church setting. They contain what I consider in verse 15 to be the hardest verse to interpret in the entire Bible. On top of that, just six months ago, we took two weeks to look at this passage and another passage. That, that talked about very similar things. I know that talking about this again can come across extremely poorly 
I know that it can come across like I have an agenda. And, and I just want to share that I'm very well aware of that this morning. But it also highlights our commitment as a church to expositional preaching. In other words, our commitment as a church to, to beginning a book and, and working our way through a book and seeing what the entire counsel of God has to say. Not cherry-picking what we want to preach on and what we don't want to preach on. You see, skipping this ver- these verses not really an option. We believe that the entire Bible is profitable for us as Christians. And so, honestly, after we spent about 10 years in Genesis, or at least that's what it seemed like, if we skipped this passage, in a book that only has six chapters, if we skipped this, it would be very noticeable. We looked at genealogies for crying out loud. For us to skip this just wouldn't make a lot of sense. In fact, if, we, if we're being honest, this passage actually makes a, a bit of sense or quite a bit of sense in the context of what Paul is writing about. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy to address certain issues. And as we look at this passage, as we look at these issues, I think it has a lot to say for us this morning. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 8 through 15 this morning. As I mentioned, this is the most divisive, uh, one of the most divisive passages in the church today. Uh, contains one of the most uh, difficult verses to understand, to interpret. Paul's words in these verses can come across extremely harsh, shocking, poorly worded, and yet I believe we have a lot that we can learn from them. Over the past month or so, we've been going through 1 Timothy. As we've been working our way through this book, we've seen what does it mean to be the church. Specifically, what does it mean for us here at Crosswinds and Spencer as a young church? What does it mean for us to be a healthy church? And last week, we saw probably the most important passage that we've looked at so far. Paul begins this discussion on what does it mean for us to be a healthy church with these words, first of all. Paul is saying, if you want to be a healthy church, this is the most important thing that you can do as a church. And then he spends the first seven verses of chapter 2 discussing our commitment, our charge, our calling as a church to a global vision for prayer. We as a church are called to be praying for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul highlights, he hits it, he, he brings it home, the importance of of prayer for a local church body. And yet this commitment to pray is not just for one another. The true calling of the church is to pray for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is to pray for the spread of the gospel into groups of people and into cultures that do not yet have the gospel. It is to pray for the Odia people of India. It is to pray for the Kaduli people of the Sudan. It is to pray for the Similai people of Malaysia, and on and on and on. And this morning's passage, believe it or not, which comes right after our calling to prayer, this morning's passage is an extension of last week's discussion on prayer. You see, if last week was all about our charge as a church to pray, then this week the focus is on what does it mean to have the right heart to pray? What kind of heart should we have if we are going to pray and have our God hear our prayers? Yes, there are some very difficult words to hear in these verses. But don't miss the forest for the trees. Or maybe a better way of saying that is don't miss the forest for the tree. Paul, I'm just going to say it. Paul has some very tough words to say on gender roles in this passage. And yet that is not Paul's primary focus. That is not Paul's primary focus. His primary focus is cultivating a heart that prays. Cultivating a heart that is pure and clean and honoring to God. And so Godwardly focused that those prayers are answered. You see, we as a church, we want our prayers to be heard by God. And that's ultimately what this morning is about. Yes, this passage addresses gender roles, but it it lands on a different question, and that is this. How is my heart? How is my heart? What kind of heart do I have? Am I honoring God with my heart? 
Is my heart, am I the kind of person that God desires? As we look at this passage, I hope there's one thing that's abundantly clear for us this morning, and that is this. God answers the prayers of the pure in heart. God answers the prayers of the pure in heart. And so as we pray together as a church, and as we pray as individuals for the spread of the gospel, as we pray together as a church and as individuals for one another, as we pray together as a church and as individuals for our future facility needs, we must have a pure and clean heart before God. Not only must we pray the right things, but we also must be the right type of people for God to hear our prayers. God answers the prayers of the pure in heart. So here's our roadmap for this morning. First and foremost, we're just going to go ahead and address the elephant in the room right off the bat. We're going to look at what Paul is saying in verses 11 through 15. We're going to spend some time looking at that. We're just going to say, what is Paul actually telling us? We're going to take some time to parse cultural distinctions from eternal truths. And after that, we're going to just look at this section as a whole. And we're going to look at what Paul is trying to tell us as his charge for us to be a people who pray. As we approach God's word, let's pray one more time. Father, at the end of uh, the book of Acts, as Paul is meeting with the elders of Ephesus, As Paul looks back on his time with the church in Ephesus, he confessed that he did not withhold a single thing from the whole counsel of God. In essence, Paul is saying that his ministry is legitimized by the fact that he doesn't skip over tough tough topics. He preaches the whole counsel of God. And we here at Crosswinds desire to be a church that does exactly that. That preaches the whole counsel of God. That takes everything that is written in this book very seriously. And so God, we ask that you would be with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we uh, approach this passage and begin discussing it, I'm just going to tell you uh, a lot of what we're going to do this morning can seem a lot more like a lecture than a sermon. Uh, I understand that. That's not normally what we do, uh, but I think it's important for us because this is such a a difficult topic. So let's go ahead and look at the verses that are in question, uh, verses 11 through 15 this morning, chapter 2 of the book of 1 Timothy. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There we have it. Very difficult passage to interpret and to understand. And so we have to ask, how do we understand Paul's words? And is there any way to apply these words for us this morning? And before we answer that, there are a couple of foundations that we have to lay. You might think I'm just beating around the bush, but this is really important for us this morning. And I kind of am beating around the bush, I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> More time I talk about other things, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but for us this morning, as we approach this passage, we have to understand two hermeneutical principles. Now, hermeneutics, uh, you might say, what on earth does that word mean? Uh, it is the theological discipline of Bible interpretation. So essentially what we're saying by that is we have to understand the right way to bridge the gap between a culture thousands of miles from here, thousands of years ago, to our culture today. We have to ask, how do we rightly understand the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible as a church? Here at Crosswinds and and a part of evangelicalism as a whole, there are two principles that we cling to that I think are very important for us this morning uh, for us to recognize. First principle is this, the principle of harmony. The principle of harmony. We believe that the Bible is non-contradictory. We believe that you can harmonize all of the Bible. We believe that because the Bible is inspired by God, it communicates exactly what God wants it to mean. What's more than that, it does not contradict itself. And so when there are, par- there are passages that might seem to be in apparent conflict, when we look at them closer, when we understand the entire context, we can rest assured that there will not be a contradiction. In fact, we can expect consistency 
in the Bible because God authored all of it. Now, that's important for us this morning as we look at this passage because it tells us exactly what Paul's words here cannot mean. As we look at this passage and we we look at Scripture as a whole, we can see that there are several things that that can be inferred from, from these verses if taken by themselves that are ruled out by the entirety of Scripture as a whole. First and foremost, this passage cannot mean that men and women are not equal in God's sight. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that both men and women are created in the image of God. Both men and women have equal dignity before God. What's more, in the book of Galatians, we see that this access to God for salvation is indiscriminate of gender. Both men and women have access to God in the exact same way. This passage cannot mean that men and women are not equal. Another thing this passage cannot mean. This passage cannot mean that women must be completely silent in church. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a similar passage to this one. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about prophecy in the church. And Paul says, when both men and women prophesy, this is the way that they are supposed to prophesy. So what this passage is not saying is that women must be completely silent in church because we believe in the principle of harmony. We believe that the Bible does not contradict itself. And Paul assumes that women are talking in church in 1 Corinthians. So Paul must be referring to something different here in the book of 1 Timothy. Another thing this passage can't mean. Verse 15, I told you it was extremely hard to understand what that verse means. It can look like Paul is teaching that the key to salvation for women is to have children. And yet that is a work. What Paul cannot be saying is that women are literally saved through childbearing. The Bible affirms elsewhere that there are wonderful, godly women that we should aspire to be like who are barren. The Bible affirms that there is salvation for everyone, indiscriminate of our works, that is found in grace. So when we talk about this foundation, we talk about the principle of harmony, it is crucial for us to recognize several things that the Bible as a whole tells us that this passage cannot mean. The second principle for us this morning is this, the principle of history. The principle of history. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that we confess that God spoke to us through the Bible and yet at the same time, God also spoke through the Bible in specific historical and cultural settings. God never spoke in a cultural vacuum. God never spoke in a, uh, in a historical background, uh, back, vacuum. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is that God entered into history, used the language, used the culture, and used the experiences of people to convey to them eternal truths. All of Paul's letters are examples of this. All of Paul's letters are written to a specific audience. They're written to a specific purpose, specific issue that the church is dealing with and that they need to address. But it would be wrong for us to say, well, that's just cultural. There's nothing that we can learn from that today. One of the things that we confess as Christians is that God communicates eternal truths to us in cultural language. That's beautiful, and yet at the same time, it is extremely challenging. Again, the question is, how do we bridge the gap of thousands of years and miles to today? How do we handle that? How do we understand what is cultural? How do we understand what is eternal in Scripture? And that's honestly where the disagreements about this passage all come from. They come from people who both believe that the word of God is the word of God. And yet they will disagree on whether Paul's words here are cultural or whether they are eternal. And so this morning, we're going to have to ask that question. We're going to have to ask, are these words cultural or are they eternal? And to do that, we have to look at context. Specifically, we have to look at three areas of context. When we talk about context, we're talking about understanding what, what is around or, or what influences the way something is written. So when we look at context, to rightly understand a difficult text, we first have to understand the literary context. We have to understand the literary context. 
Remember, no passage is written in a vacuum. Things are written before this passage. Things are written after this passage that heavily influence what Paul is saying in these verses. It's extremely true for us this morning. Paul begins verse 8 in Greek with the word therefore. My wife and I used to attend a church where uh, the pastor would always say, what is a therefore, therefore? Well, it's referring us back to what Paul has already said. So Paul here in verse 8 is saying, now based off of everything I've already told you, here are a couple other things that we need to know. So it would be wrong for us to look at this passage in a vacuum, to not recognize that Paul has said things before this. Remember, Paul is writing this in the context of a church. What's more than that, he's writing this in the context of a calling for the church to, to pray and to spread the gospel. And so Paul is, is talking about this and he says, you know what, now, now we're going to talk about one or two more things that influence what we just talked about. Everything that is written here is all about the spread of the gospel. Everything that is written here is all about prayer. Right after these verses, Paul talks about church leadership. It's an appropriate transition here in between the primacy of prayer in chapter 2 and also the, the leaders of the church in chapter 3. We have this passage that addresses both. Paul connects our calling to pray with church leadership. He's looking at the heart of the church. So, to rightly understand a difficult text, we have to look at the literary context. We also have to look at the historical context. We also have to look at the historical context. Every passage or every book of the Bible is situational. There are eternal truths, yes, that are relevant today, yes. And yet they were written specifically for different groups that were going through different experiences and had different sets of circumstances. 95% or more of the things in the Bible that can be confusing, that don't make sense to us today, can be answered by just looking at the historical context. Looking at what was going on behind the scenes for those that received those letters or those books. And again, that's important for us this morning. We cannot read verses 11 through 15 without due credence to the historical context to the presence of false teachers in ephesus if you remember a couple weeks ago we looked at the reality that there were false teachers in ephesus there were people that were talking uh, about how uh, the gospel isn't enough they were saying you know what if you really want to become a christian if you really want to go deep in your faith with god you should go elsewhere You should turn your eyes to these different books that will teach you about how to go deep in your relationship with God. What's more than that, they also began to teach a very popular temptation in the first century according to Greek tradition. And that was the rejection of the physical as evil. People thought that everything physical was evil. They rejected good gifts such as marriage, as food. They rejected all these things because they were distractions. They were distractions from true knowledge that could be found by remaining, quote, unstained from the world. That's the historical context that Paul is addressing. What's more than that, Paul is also addressing this, uh, this temptation of these false teachers to fall into misogyny that was extremely common in first century Jewish rabbis. Rabbis of the first century were known for hating women. They were known for refusing to teach women. Speaking with a woman was completely unheard of for a first century Jewish rabbi. And touching one was a crime bordering near death. And all of this plays into what Paul is writing right here. Last piece of context that we have to understand is this. Biblical context. We have to understand the biblical context to fully understand this passage. Earlier, we'd said that the Bible does not contradict itself. And when we approach a passage like this, we have to rely heavily on the Bible to understand what Paul is saying. And so when we say biblical context, we look at what the entire Bible has to say about a topic. Now, this is exactly what we looked at back in August. So if you have questions about this or want to go more in depth, I encourage you to check out those two sermons. 
but just a, a brief treatment for us this morning. What does the Bible have to say about this? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, tell us that God created both men and women. He created everything, and he created it good. There were no mistakes. There were no problems in God's creation. Before sin, everything was good, and it was perfect, and God just sat back in satisfaction about what he had created. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us at least three things about gender distinctions or gender uh, equality and gender roles in the Bible. First, it tells us that both men and women have equal worth. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Because they are created in God's image, they both have equal worth in his sight, equal dignity. This is a source of our dignity today. The image of God is bound equally in both men and women. What's more, we see that both men and women are given an equal task. Both men and women were created by God to work alongside God, governing his creation. It's a beautiful truth. God created humanity originally to rule his creation alongside of him. To be his governors over his creation. Both men and women were given this task to rule over creation with God. And yet in Genesis 1 and 2, before sin enters the world, before things fall apart and break, we also see that the way that they accomplish this task is different. Men and women have different roles for accomplishing the task that God had given to them. So there are some irreducible truths that we see from Genesis 1 and 2 that are found throughout the Bible. And that is this, both men and women have equal worth, both men and women have an equal task, and yet they have different roles for accomplishing that task. Genesis 3, Genesis 4 tell us how sin enters the world and corrupts everything good that God had created. Every good part of God's plan for human flourishing has been warped by sin. Now we see tension and enmity in these interpersonal relationships between men and women. We see the abuse of men taking their role as a license to exploit, assault, and dominate rather than to serve. And if we're honest... We can say we still live in that brokenness today. Every single day we see news of the evils of men exploiting women, assaulting women, taking advantage of women, those that they have been entrusted to die for. And yet in this broken world, there is hope. And that hope is found in the gospel. If we look at the life of Jesus and the way that he interacts with women, it is earth-shattering. Jesus took women and elevated women in a society that despised them. Women were allowed to travel with Jesus. They spoke with Jesus. They cried with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. They brought others to Jesus. They supported Jesus. They were the first people to see the resurrected Jesus. These were unthinkable crimes to Jewish men in the first century. And yet Jesus didn't care. Jesus elevated the role of women. And the same is true for the early church. Women served in numerous capacities in the early church. They hosted churches. They were deacons in churches. They brought letters to other churches. They were missionaries. They even taught other people. The testimony of women in the first century is astounding, considering the historical background. And yet, what is surprising, even as Jesus elevates the role of women, it is surprising that Jesus never makes one a, an apostle. Jesus had no problem ticking off the religious establishment, and yet Jesus didn't do that. And the same is true in the first century church. And what we see is that in this gospel new creation community, the church, we, we see a return to God's original view for human flourishing. Men and women are created with equal worth. Men and women have equal uh, access to God. We also see that men and women have an equal task. The spread of the gospel relies both equally on men and on women. And yet there are different roles for accomplishing this task. And that's what Paul is, is trying to address here this morning. That's the context of what Paul is addressing here this morning. So what is Paul saying? Well, first, notice what Paul is affirming. He's affirming that women have the right to participate in worship services. This is something that was unheard of in first century pagan worship, first century Jewish worship. Paul is affirming the right for women and men to worship together rather than separately. 
God's new creation community, God's community, is something different than the world all in, altogether. What's more than that, Paul also uh, says some things that make a lot of sense in light of the issues of Ephesus and what first century churches were structured like. So let's, let's take a look, and we did this uh, back in August. Uh, let's take a look at first century church service structure. I think this will help us understand quite a bit of what Paul is saying here. The, the first century church service was structured a lot like the Jewish synagogue. Paid pastors to do all the teaching were a very rare commodity. And so people would rely on the teaching of non-pastors. It was common for people uh, such as traveling rabbis to go from city to city or town to town to arrive and to speak in the synagogue. And that's exactly what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. He would travel throughout the area as an itinerant teacher speaking in synagogues. Now, if this teaching was primarily done by itinerant speakers, you could... You can imagine it'd be pretty easy for unbiblical teaching to work its way in. It'd be pretty easy for someone to claim that they were uh, authoritative and yet they really weren't. And so there was a safeguard put in place. There were elders in every single synagogue who would listen to the teaching and they would judge whether it was true or not. If it was true, after the teaching was done, they would say, amen, amen. Or truly, truly. It was a word of affirmation that this teaching is right. Incidentally, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus says that all the time about his own teaching. What's shocking is Jesus says it before he even begins. Jesus begins his teaching. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. This is one of the reasons why people hated Jesus so much. Jesus was declaring his own authority. As a son of God, in his teaching, he wasn't relying on the elders to do so. Same context is is similar in the early church. There were a high number of itinerant preachers. People like Paul, Silas, Barnabas, John, Mark, Philip, Peter, Apollos. All of these people from the book of Acts were constantly traveling throughout the known world, sharing the gospel in these churches that had been established. And yet, from books such as Philippians and 1 Corinthians, we also see that there were false teachers who were traveling around, teaching their own false gospel. Remember, this is a time before the New Testament has been established yet. There aren't authoritative words about the gospel written down and held to as the word of God at this point. And so, it was crucial for elders in the first century church to judge the truth of each teaching of each prophecy that was issued. Remember, according to 1 Corinthians, prophecy was something that women could do. And it seems like this role of pronouncing authority over what has been taught is exactly what Paul is, is, is talking about here in 1 Timothy. What he's talking about in 1 Corinthians where he mentions something similar. Here in 1 Timothy, we see a connection between teaching and exercising authority. Paul isn't prohibiting women from sharing in church. Instead, he is prohibiting women from serving in the authoritative place of judgment as an elder. You might be saying, well, what exactly does that mean? Or or what's the big deal for that? How is their teaching authoritative? Remember, the the New Testament, before it was written, elders served as the final say uh, of what is truth and what is heresy. And their teaching was considered authoritative because they carried power to discipline those in the church And so what Paul is essentially saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that the office of pastor, the office of elder, seems to be limited primarily to men. Not primarily, exclusively to men. You might be saying, well, is this a cultural command? Some of you might be saying, well, gosh, I hope so. That's kind of where I, I land on this. But it does not appear to be just a cultural command. Take a look at verses 13 and 14 once again. This is Paul's reasoning for what he has said. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul seems to root his reasoning not in culture. He doesn't root his reasoning in the fall, but he instead roots it in the original creation. He roots it in creation order. And you might say, you know what, that's not a very good argument. I mean, let's be honest. Creation order, what does that really matter? Why is that significant? Is Paul making a mountain out of a molehill? 
And we might say, you know what, yeah, in, a, in our context, in our culture, creation order doesn't seem to mean all that much. But for his context, for his culture, this was a brilliant argument. A culture completely foreign to our modern culture saw an emphasis on birth order as extremely important. Birth order was extremely important in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Throughout the Bible, birth order matters. It is a sign of one's status before God. Jesus is called the firstborn of the new creation, not because Jesus was born, not because Jesus was created, but instead as a, as a statement of his primacy. Jesus' own resurrection is uh, the first fruits of our resurrection. In the Old Testament, the firstborn was to belong to God. They were to be purchased back or redeemed from God because they belonged to him. And so while in our context, the, the argument of creation order might seem like a poor argument, we should not discount, we should be slow to cast judgment on the way the Bible views consistently from cover to cover this argument of birth order but then we turn our attention to verse 15 verse 15 is even more confusing it seems like the most anti-pauline most unbiblical insensitive thing to say imaginable let's take a, a look at it again yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control what is paul saying here what does paul mean here is there any interpretation here that makes sense? Well, this, uh, this passage has been debated from the very beginning of, uh, of this book. Uh, it is very difficult to understand. Any interpretation should be done with humility. But, but here's my best shot. Take a look at verses uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 4. In, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul sheds light on this passage in chapter 2 by looking at false teaching. This is the clearest description of the false teaching that is taking place in Ephesus that we have in 1 Timothy. It says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything credited by God is good. Or, excuse me, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I mentioned these words give us the clearest view of the false teaching that's taking place in Ephesus, which we alluded to earlier. So this false teaching is rejecting the goodness of God's physical creation. Part of the goodness of God's physical creation is marriage, is food, and by extension, part of God's, uh, the goodness of God's original creation is children, is having children, is childbearing, is child rearing. I want you to imagine for a second that you're a woman in the first century of the Ephesian church. Now, like most people of the first century, you are illiterate. Even if you were literate, uh, this is 1400 years before the printing press was invented, so books are pretty rare. You became a Christian because of the beautiful good news of the gospel of the, the idea of salvation by grace through faith, the idea that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. You've been growing in your faith. You are earnest to know God, to serve God, to please God. But because you are illiterate, you have to rely on someone else to read God's word and to tell you how to please God, how to honor God, how to love God, how to follow God. One day, a leader in your church begins to say something that is a little different than what you've heard before. They begin to say that marriage is wrong. In fact, if you really wanted to please God, you wouldn't have gotten married in the first place. You certainly wouldn't have had children. And you begin to hear this with more and more frequency to the point that first you begin to feel like you've let God down. You've failed him. And then later, as it continues, you begin to wonder if you've lost your salvation. If you are too far gone for God because you have children. You are married. And it's in this context that Paul is writing these words. It's in this context that Paul's words actually give a confidence and an assurance to the women of the church in Ephesus. That their salvation doesn't depend on having children. 
Their salvation doesn't depend on not having children. In fact, it's just completely a non-issue when it comes to the gospel. Marriage and children are a good gift from God, and their salvation is not dependent upon abstaining from marriage and abstaining from having children. Their salvation rests solely in the work of Christ as their Lord and Savior. Do you see what Paul is doing here? In verse 15, these words that can come across as misogynistic, as something that is something we should reject, Paul is actually offering comfort. He's actually saying that it doesn't matter if you have children or not. You will be saved by God even if you have children, is what Paul is saying here. He's combating the false teaching of the church in Ephesus while elevating the role of women in the church just like Jesus did. So after all of that, what does Paul's words mean for us this morning? What does this passage mean for us this morning? The answer is found in verses 8 through 10. Let's look at these as we close. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for God who for women who profess godliness with good works. So Paul issues two commands here. First command is is directed to men. He says you are supposed to pray without anger. The second one is addressed to women, and he says women are to dress modestly. These are great, pretty straightforward commands for the early church, and frankly for us as well. They're great exhortations. We could take them at false value. Men should pray without quarreling. They should pray without anger. Women should indeed dress modestly, but I think that we're missing something if we just stop right there. Paul seems to be saying something more than that. Here's what I mean by that. Do you think that men are the only ones who are called to pray without anger or quarreling? You think that's a good idea for women to do as well? Of course it is. I think what Paul is saying is he's writing an eternal command that we are to pray without anger, and he's writing in a specific cultural command to men. He's addressing a, a cultural issue. Men are the ones who are arguing, and they are the ones who are primarily to blame. Apparently in Ephesus, with the false teaching going around, the men in the church were getting pretty upset about that false teaching. To the point that they started acting very ungodly. They were very upset. They refused, even those that refused to succumb to the false teaching were making fools of themselves in the ways they were acting with arguments and anger and quarreling. And what Paul is writing is he's, he's addressing these men and saying, you need to stop it. If you truly want your prayers for the spread of the gospel to be heard, you need to stop your anger. You need to stop your quarreling. And you need to pray with holy hands. Paul is addressing men not because women don't matter, but because men were the problem. Paul is telling men and women to check their hearts before they worship. If they take their charge as Christians seriously, if we take our charge as a church seriously, we would be fools to pray with a malicious heart. We would be fools to pray with an impure heart. God takes the positions of our hearts very seriously when we approach him. He's not overly concerned with our physical approach. God, God's not overly concerned with whether we are lifting up holy, uh, holy hands like Paul says. Paul is, God is concerned with our heart posture. God is deeply concerned with the word holy in that passage. That we are to be holy, consecrated to God when we pray. Psalm 24, which Gail read to us earlier, is on Paul's mind when he says this. He says this, uh, David says this in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not give up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You see how these, cha- these verses are connected to what came before. If we take our approach to the throne of God in prayer seriously, we will first check our hearts. 
we will approach God with reverence. We will approach God with a clear conscience and in harmony with others in the church. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. And if our desires as a church are to have our prayers answered, then we must be a people who are pure in heart. This is, the tr- this is the key to true worship in the local church, a commitment to purity before God. Just a few verses later in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount still, Jesus says this, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. For us to have our prayers answered, for God to hear us, for us to be able to approach God's throne, we must have a right relationship with God. We must confess any sort of hidden sin that we may have. But also at the same time, we must make sure that we are in right relationship with those who are around us. Paul doesn't just say lift up holy hands. He also says to do so without anger and without quarreling. What is the heart that God desires? It is a heart that is pure toward him and it is a heart that is pure toward others. So verse 8 may look like it's just directed to men, but it's actually relevant for both men and women. I think the same is true for verses 9 and 10. Uh, Paul issues a call to modesty. It's a very important call to the church, a very important charge to the church. This, the words in verse 10 where Paul says that we are to focus on good works, adorn ourselves with good works, that is definitely true for just men, for not just women, but also men as well. But I think more specifically, or more significantly still, is the purpose behind this charge. Ephesus was known as the home of Artemis, one of the Greek goddesses that was very common in that day. It's known throughout the Roman world as being the home of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of hunting. She was the goddess of uh, of fertility. In first century Ephesus, it was extremely common for someone to worship Artemis by engaging with a prostitute. These prostitutes would be dressed with lavish hairstyles, with gold, with pearls, with expensive clothes. And they were set apart from everyone else. In the first century, people began to dress, not just, as, not just the prostitutes, but other women began to dress this way as well to associate themselves with Artemis, to show that they were worshiping Artemis. And so what Paul seems to be saying here, he says, I don't want anyone in the church to associate themselves with this pagan goddess. I don't want anyone in the church to have an undivided heart. To have one foot in the door worshiping God and one foot out in the world worshiping Artemis. And again, doesn't that seem to make sense not just for women but also for men? This calling to have an undivided heart. Jesus says in the Gospels that we cannot serve both God and money. The same can be true for a number of different things that we turn into gods. We cannot serve both God and work. We cannot serve both God and family. We cannot serve both God and ego. And on and on and on the list could go. If we want our prayers to be heard, we must have an undivided heart. We must have a heart that is pure before God. A heart that is right with others. And that's what this passage is primarily about. Yes, it talks about gender roles. It talks about how women and men relate to one another in the church. But more important is about how we relate with God in the church. Do we have an undivided heart? Do we have clean consciences before God? Do we honor God in relationships with others? And so just a couple thoughts here as we close. Are are there any sins you need to confess? Are there any sins that you have kept quiet, that you've kept secret, that you need to confess for your relationship with God? Any good gifts that God has given you that you have turned into a God? Anything that is hampering your relationship with God? Are there any sins you need to confess? Second question for us to ask, is there someone you need to reconcile with? Is there someone you need to reconcile with? God says that we must take seriously our relationship with others if we are going to worship him. 
Is there someone that God is calling you to reconcile with? Unconfessed sin hampers our relationship with our Father, and the same is true with broken relationships with others. Horizontal relationships greatly affect our vertical relationship with God. Is there anyone you need to reconcile with? And then finally, the last one is this. We should just examine our hearts to see whether they are divided or not. Examine your heart to see if it is divided or not. Are you worshiping the God of the Bible while also paying homage to gods of our culture? Are you worshiping God and worshiping the things of our culture? Is your heart divided? Is it committed to more than one God? That is what Paul is addressing here. God is saying that he answers the prayers of the pure in heart. If we truly want to be a house of prayer, a church of prayer, then we must live lives of purity, of holiness, of cleanliness before God. And so as a church, as we commit ourselves to prayer as a church, let's not lose sight of that. Let's be a people that are pure in heart. For just as Jesus says, we shall see God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and and how it is true. I I just want to apologize for the ways that this passage has so often been misrepresented, misconstrued by your church throughout history. Forgive us, God. We pray that as we go from here, you would help us to examine our hearts Examine our lives to see if they truly are honoring to you. Help us to live lives that are undivided before you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.